0: How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. Hello and welcome to How Hard Can It Be? Up close and personal with the real people in Boston's venture capital, big time. My name is Mike Treano, and you can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap or on Medium at MikeTrap.com. My guest this week is Kirk Arnold, a veteran tech industry CEO, public board member, and lecturer at MIT Sloan School of Management. Uh, Kirk was most recently the CEO of Data Intensity, a 650-person global managed service provider of cloud-based data application and analytics, which was acquired by EQT Partners in 2017. Before that, she held roles as the COO of Avid, CEO and president of the then publicly traded billion-dollar service provider Keen, and founder and CEO of NerveWire. Uh, Kirk's been a kind of tech CEO whisperer over the years and serves on a range of boards from Ingersoll Rand to Kramer Marketing, where she's been for over a decade. She serves on the executive committee and board of trustees of the Mass Technology Leadership Council, is a board member of the Commonwealth Institute, and serves on the advisory committee for the Mass Technology Collaborative. And Kirk and I met as she spoke after me at the Start MIT event about a month ago. Uh, after that event, Jen Lum gave us both a shout out on Twitter, and um, I, I sort of started to engage with Kirk, liked her immediately, and thought she'd be a fantastic guest on the pod. Um, and I was right. Uh, awesome lady, awesome entrepreneur. Uh, I really think you're going to enjoy her story. And uh, without further ado, here's my conversation earlier today uh, with Kirk Arnold. Uh, Slurping is is a lot. It's It's not a, uh, there's no, uh, this isn't network. This is just, it's just a podcast, Kirk. Um, All right. So uh, welcome. Thanks for coming into G20 today. Um, I, am I'm really glad to meet you and I very rarely like, you know, um, meet someone at your level that I've never, I've really never heard of (laughs) and, uh, it's a pleasure. I really appreciate you coming Thank you,
1: Mike, for having me and I don't know if I should be concerned or delighted that you've never heard (laughs) of me because I'll tell you a little bit more of that as we meander through, but it's great to meet you too and, and obviously I'm I'm a fan. I had a chance to see you speak, which... Uh, I actually picked up several things that I wish I had known 20 years ago, but it was great.
0: That's very kind. That uh, that Start MIT thing is really a winner. I, I think it's it's very cool. I, w- I was resistant to it, as we discussed earlier uh, in the beginning, but uh, it's a fantastic program, really. It's a pleasure to be a part of it.
1: Yeah. I have, uh, I'm from the Boston area. I grew up in Boston, and I sort of always had a particular picture in my mind of the of MIT as being, you know, a really heads-down tech place. And it's a much, as I've learned and, you know, I've had the opportunity to be involved a little bit, it's a really cool place and I think important for the future of the tech economy in Boston. So Yeah,
0: I, w- I would agree. All right, so let's talk about growing up. So are you a, are you a Metro West girl, a North Shore? What's your, where did you grow up uh, specifically? I'm from
1: Melrose, Gateway to Revere. <laughs> so I grew up in Melrose. On the Linway. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: Um, and, and what was the circumstance of your family? Was it a big it's family? It was a Is big so-
1: family. Um, my parents were real young. My dad went to Dartmouth and like I think they had at least three kids when they graduated. A very different time. We, we lived in Melrose. I went to Melrose High. I have, uh, three sisters. So four girls and a baby brother. And where and were you in the birth order? I'm second to oldest. So, uh, we, we had uh, a magnificent, very middle class upbringing and, The one thing we knew was, you know, you go to high school and then you go to college and then off you go. So it was a very uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, education focus. But, But, you know, one of the things I always say as a woman in particular in business in the 80s is, I far exceeded my parents' expectation of me in about year five of my career, so there's no pressure. It was very, very uh, easy navigating.
0: That's good. Now, you went to Dartmouth. Was that preordained, or was that... That's a big deal. So,
1: dad was a Dartmouth grad, and it's so different now. I'm a mother of two adult children, and when we went through this process, it was comprehensive and visits. At the time, I looked at three catalogs. I was... uh, I was uh, very lucky to be part of a, kind of an advanced placement program in Melrose High School, public school, which I'm a big believer in. And um, so I looked at the catalogs. I, you know, we'd been up to Dartmouth. I said, sure, this is great. You know, it wasn't an elaborate process. I'll never forget, I, I got accepted to Dartmouth. Now, it was a different place than I expected, um, but I was excited to be accepted early decision so I'm sitting in my calculus class with Mr. Grant, and he, the high school had been informed that I'd been accepted, and he announced to my little high sc- my little calculus class that Dartmouth must be recruiting cheerleaders because they certainly aren't looking wow. for good, for good calculus oh my students. God. So <clears throat> that was, that was interesting. I was not a good calculus uh, student, but uh, I was delighted to go, and I had a, I had a wonderful time. It was at when I arrived ten to one men to women. So as you may know, the history of the school is, is, is very much a, an all-male school. So it was at a transformative time and uh, it was great. What did you study there? I studied public policy and government. I was off to change the world. That's what I, that's what I was headed
0: for. And what did you do after school?
1: Well, so I had a chance to visit and work in Washington. One of the things that's cool about Dartmouth is, uh, even then they had, um, study abroad and internship programs. I work for a guy named Paul Songus. because you've
0: got to get out of Hanover. you
1: got to get out of Hanover, particularly um, you in the winter, unless out. you're a skier, which I am not. Or you
0: have a serious alcohol problem, in, either, in yeah, either case. Either case. Well, uh, that was
1: pretty broad, broad, yeah. uh, broad, broad issue. But um, so I I uh, work for Paul Songus, which is uh, some of you, you may remember uh, he was a senator. Sure. Dartmouth grad. And discovered he he gave me the bet one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten as I was contemplating do I want to come down and work in Washington and change the world, which I still aspire to do by the way, Hope Springs Eternal. Um, but he said to me, Kirk, you're you know, as you think about what do you want to do, you're a you're a results person and this is a process place. It was really profound advice. So wow. we we measure progress to the goal, we don't we don't measure the touchdown. And so I, I knew that would be frustrating for me, so I ended up ended up in business.
0: Wow. Um, and how old were you at that point?
1: I was like, I was like 19.
0: Yeah. So I'm still getting started.
1: Just getting started. All
0: right. So you decide that, uh, you want to go into business and, um, how did you make the sort of contacts? How did you, you know, where do you begin if you're, was it your Dartmouth uh, alumni connections or how, how did you make your way over into whatever you started it?
1: So, uh, I, was, I went through the recruiting process at the end of my four years at Dartmouth, and IBM showed up, and they were recruiting for salespeople, salesmen, which is what they called it, yeah. which is okay, either way. Uh, and I, uh, I got an offer, and I thought, well, this could be interesting. And I had no particular passion about technology at the time and certainly no particular passion about sales, um, but it looked like a job, and I took it. So it was that profound a shift. Um, now the journey has been uh, incredible and I feel so lucky, but honestly it was, I, I wasn't particularly clear on where I wanted to be. My, my, my sense is I'll do this for a couple of years, maybe go back to business school. And I felt, I fell in love with the industry. It was really love at first sight.
0: You know, that, um, I feel like that's become an unfortunately atypical career arc. You know, it seems like, um, I think particularly on the East Coast and the West Coast, it feels like people can graduate from Stanford, they'll go work at PayPal, they sort of become intimate with a scaled customer problem, and then they go build a business to address that, whatever it is. Whereas in the East Coast, it feels it's much more typical that someone, you know, you know, particularly at MIT, they invent Flubber and in some PhD thesis, and they want to go monetize it, you know, and they hire a marketing person. Or, um, you know, what, what's your counsel to people? Um, particularly young folks who have an opportunity to work at a big like you know white-shirted place I guess you know IBM isn't what it used to be in that respect but it's like a big company and certainly not as cool as going to start whatever Um, you know what's what, what are your thoughts having been through that experience for for them?
1: So I really think it's a great question, Mike, and I do have the opportunity in the work I'm doing at MIT and just in general working with friends of my children and being in the community to have that conversation. And I love having the conversation. And I do think, um, particularly for those who have aspirations of being an entrepreneur, that experience in in scale businesses is is valuable. And it doesn't have to be massive scale as in IBM, but the two things that were massively beneficial to me – were the training. So at the time, IBM trained us for 12 months. We spent six months in classroom, doing both uh, deep dives into technology and the direction of the product, and then lots of time doing sort of sales call and presentation techniques, and developing listening skills, and developing um, you know, a, a cadence around the sales process, particularly complex enterprise sales, which I was headed to. So I... Uh, I mean, I came in cold. As, as I said, I was a government major. I was studying politics. I, I had really no direction towards this. So the training was invaluable. Um, I, think, I think it is a critical dimension of business. It's very hard for young companies to invest in comprehensive training. So I guess the training was amazing, and the ability to observe leadership was also something that was uh, incredibly valuable to me and is hard to do in a young company where everybody's kind of new. So you get a chance to watch experienced leaders inside these larger companies who are very talented, and you, you as someone who's being led, can say, "This is really working for me. I'm going to do that someday when I'm a leader." And then you also have the opportunity to watch really bad leaders, um, and in some ta- in cases, it's a better learning experience. You can say, "I never want to do that." I have a I have a memory, for instance, of sitting in a hallway. I was called down to headquarters at IBM, in a hallway. Uh, I was supposedly a high-potential young uh, person at the company. I was going to be networking with this very senior leader. I sat in my chair for an hour. He was an hour late for the meeting. And as the time ticked by, I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is really, really insulting. This Obviously, this person doesn't value my time, yeah. and blah, 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 blah. So I'm now chronic. You know, those are the kind of lessons where I really am sensitive to people's schedules. I try to be on time. I try n- to have no one feel like they're not important, whether it's the brand-new trainee or the senior customer. So um, it's little lessons like that. It's big lessons like communications and the importance of constant communication. So you can observe all that and and gather the goods and the bads, and I think it's very important because you sit in class or uh, or even as a, as, a, as a young person in a small company, it's hard to get that visibility, and I think it's really made a difference for me.
0: Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree more about that. I, I feel like... Um, you know, authenticity is the currency of the realm when it comes to you know the way we communicate and engage with each other. And I think people people value the details because they reflect the authentic person. Like it's it's easy to sort of do whatever with the grand gesture and to kind of fake it, uh, but when someone you know the courtesy of being on time is a big one for me too, um, because I because I I I, um, I do think it, it those those little things they have a disproportionate impact on how you're perceived. By your peers, by your superiors, by your subordinates, you know. Um, so, how did at you come level. to that?
1: Did you watch that? Did you experience it? Or did you have great training from your parents? Or what's Because I think that's. Yeah, sometimes people I, just don't know this. I stuff. think
0: the same way you did. I think I think feeling like, um, the feeling of resentment when people implicitly determined that their time was more important than mine, and I think that, um, you know, I don't I don't like that. I. I um, I I am, I have like definitely a chip on my shoulder about some, probably some Italian American ethnicity and, and, um, I grew up in a place called Johnston in Rhode Island. And, you know, my mother used to say, you're not better than anyone, but nobody's better than you.
1: Yay, mom. Um,
0: and I, I really, you know, there've been so many times in my life where that, for whatever reason, that nugget of the 4,000 things she said to me, like really stuck with me Uh. And I, and I think it's, it's not a bad philosophy yep. at any level um, to just try and like engage other people as a person. And, um, and I think part of that is respecting their time, as you say. It's also trying to be, it's preparation. I mean, that's the other thing is like, do your homework. Um, like I'll say, like in an interview, very often I'll say, well, what do you know about me? Um, and, and it's not, it's not intended, I, I'm sure people interpret it as, oh God, this egomaniac, but it's not. I just wanna see if you've at least read my bio. Um, right. Or if you've done some, some level of, you know, particularly in a sales or a marketing role, um, that's really what I'm looking for. And I think it it's telling uh, the level of preparation people put into, uh, you know, particularly important meetings, but really any discussion. Any
1: discussion, yeah. right? And it's so easy now, right? With yeah. LinkedIn and the resources, it's so easy uh, to come prepared about the company and about the individual. and I And I completely agree that those are the kind of things, regardless of your position in a company that are, you know, really important to create a discussion, a dialogue, and I think a culture. Um, there are two things that about the IBM culture, and I spent ten years there, which was far longer than I expected. I was driven to be an entrepreneur. I'll tell you a little bit about why that is, but um, so but the two things that I took from IBM that really were strengths of the culture, and they had started to atrophy when I was there, and there was obviously a lot of, you know tumultuous times, and Lou Gerstner came in. And I got to watch some of that, some other uh, incredible lessons. But the two two values or defining tenets of the culture at IBM when I was training there, one was that this sort of customer-first concept, that, that it's all about the customer. And this was a real thing at IBM, the creating value for the customer, despite our strong at the time, incredibly strong market position, which we saw completely collapse. Right. But um, this, this real commitment to customer service and customer engagement, even, even in the sales team, that was really uh, in, very deeply embedded in us. And the questioning techniques, even simple indications of that, that you really do go prepared yes, ask questions. But the other one that maybe is even more profound for me over time uh, is leadership is service. And maybe the reason you've never met me is I, I believe profoundly that great businesses are built by great teams, Um, and that everybody serves the customer and the employees. Um, This isn't about celebrity. This isn't about ego. This is about how do we together create something that matters, and I hope that doesn't sound trite, but it's a belief that I was was part of the leadership system at the time at IBM. Uh, The folks whose teams were most successful were the ones that were promoted. The leaders who were... You know, most about themselves really for a long time at IBM did not flourish. Now that, as I said, changed over time, but they became very central parts. And to your point about authenticity, I think that's really important. So that to get people to believe these people really care, they really want me to be successful. By the way, if, if you can't be successful, if you're not committed, you can't be part of the team because this is a dynamic where we're all trying to win. But I do think it's all about that leadership authenticity. I love that word.
0: You know, that servant leader ethos seems to come more readily to women. I
1: think
0: so. You know, as as a very accomplished female CEO, you know, it's such a weird moment um, on anything related to gender. And I do think that there are, for whatever reason, culturally, I don't think they're necessarily biological. There's a bias, uh, I think, towards a more empathic, empathetic style. There's, there's, there's a, a sort of stigma to self-promotion, like, a man can talk about how great he is for a half hour. A woman does whatever or becomes difficult and she's bitchy and whatever. Like, it's a, definitely a different standard people are held to. Um, do, do, do you observe that uh, as well? Like, that, that men, for whatever reason, they can't help but self-promote in a way that can be counterproductive in teams? Uh, or, or do you feel like it's a, it's a, it's a gender-neutral uh, quality?
1: So, I, I don't <clears throat> think it's gender-neutral. Um, I definitely think that we co- women come to leadership uh, and maybe to to of everything differently than men. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think that it's important to lead from who you are. I'm a mom as well as an executive and a wife. Um, and you know, I, I those are things that make me who I am, and I bring all that to my leadership experience. And if it's an authentic leadership experience to your to your point, Mike, those all have to be part of the conversation, just as men come with their experience, right? Yeah. My son's a new, uh, he, he's at data dog. He's a sales, uh, young salesperson, at data dog. And, and he was an athlete, right? He Played professional hockey. So he comes with an aggressive spirit. And that's who he is. And that's what's making him successful. Yeah. So I think it is very much who we are. Um, I... And, and I think there's an interesting dilemma for women, because a lot of times, when I was re- early in business, it was wear the suit, and you're too young to remember the women, we wore these little bow ties, and it was a train wreck, okay, it was all, I look back on it, because you wanted to be dressed for success, and there was actually a book out that said, don't put pictures of your family to women, this is a message to mm-hmm. women, on your desk, you know, and so here we come into this thing, and I had the great benefit uh, early in my leadership experience of, of meeting and actually getting mentored by Jim Collins, who you may know wrote sure. Good to Great and Built to Last. And, and Jim, um, you know, I'm a deep believer in some of his tenets about, about what makes a company great and this concept of you know, this sort of ego, less ego leader, ego free, it's hard to be that. Um, and, and that is an aspiration and that great teams do make great businesses. But he and I would talk about this, this was in the you know, kind of early 90s, is that right? Yeah, or early, early to mid-90s. His hope that women would be really leading the pack on this, it was early on in the journey. And then uh, Carly Fiorina emerged, right? And Jim had wrote this incredible Wall Street Journal article about how, if you don't know Carly's story, she's a very, very strong ego leader, very visible, very aggressive, right? And so he was he was bemoaning the fact that maybe his principle was wrong. and and in in all classes, whether whether it's racial or gender or whatever, there are different there are spectrums, right? There are different people who are super aggressive and people who are super mild. but generally speaking, I do think that women bring a different thing, which is why diversity is so important. just like, Europeans bring a different thing than Americans. Yeah. Just like you know, uh, folks who grew up uh, as as my, in minority populations bring a different thing to a leadership team, and it's the combination of all that. I, I know it sounds really politically correct. I believe it to be true, um, but there's no question that I think women are more empathetic, and I, I think uh, for those who choose to lead. I'm loving the chance to engage in lots of mentorship, but particularly with young women to say you can be who you are, and not try to emulate somebody else's version of authentic leadership.
0: Yeah, I'll give I'll give you a quick story that uh, is an overlap in our background, um, which I didn't really realize until now. But so when Lou Gershner came in, he brought Abby Constam with him, and um, Abby hired. I was at Ogilvy at the time. We came in and did. Oh. We, I worked on Solutions for a Small Planet for IBM wow. um, at Ogilvy. And um, you know Lou, who I met three or four times, um, was like the quintessentially masculine. Uh, <laughs> he was a real um, ballbuster, as they say in in uh, Melrose. Um, and uh, and Ogilvy was a very feminine place because Charlotte Beers was our. Chairman and CEO, and right. then Shelly Lazarus ran the Ogilvy Direct right. business. I, I was the CEO of Ogilvy Interactive, the founding CEO, and there were three people above me in the Ogilvy hierarchy, and they were all women. Wow. Yeah. So, so I think in agencies, have uh, I think on balance, with some exceptions, they've done a better job. Mad Men aside, yeah. For whatever reason, like in the post, you know, WPP era, Ogilvy was a, was fairly gender gender balanced. A lot of a lot of fooling around, but but gender balanced. And you know, Lou was so intimidating. And very people had a lot of trouble sort of standing up to him, but but when Charlotte or Shelley talked to Lou, Lou was a good boy, oh. and Charlotte and Shelley could say things to Lou, and again they were they were they were aw- awesome. Shelley in particular was was like super fun and high energy. Charlotte was like in Chanel head to toe, <laughs> like very she was a you know she was like old school. Um, but but had a little bit of a drawl, and, and she would talk to Lou, and Lou would sit there politely, and Charlotte could say things to Lou that nobody could say, and I think it speaks to w- w- the reason those two women were great leaders was I think they were who they were, like they did not embrace a masculine style of leadership, you, you know you know I say sometimes you got to play the hand you're dealt, you know, totally. Um, and sh- and Charlotte had this very quiet way about her, but but boy. When you know when she talked to a male executive, a client or not, and even someone like Lou, who was a you know, who was a big deal, um and and you know stomped around the halls. I mean, he was like you know, um I think she, I think she was very effective at at you know to use a, a a phrase managing him, whatever. He had some deference, like even inside a man like that, wow. there's some level of deference to, you know, to the female, um because you know I don't know what it was, but I I really took a lot away from that, and and ironically. I feel like my experience with both of them, Shelley and Charlotte, sort of freed me a little bit to be a little bit more of like an Italian guy, you know. That's good um, though, because I had suppressed that as a you know I went to Cornell and I I wanted to be like a white kid, you know. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway. Um, but don't you funny. think
1: when that happened, you became people? I connected with you more. No question. It was who you were?
0: Yeah, no question. No question. Like I, I marvel at people who are try to separate their kind of work persona from their. You know, like whoever they are, like I'll say whatever I want to say, like even and my it makes my dad very uncomfortable, um, I think, and it makes it makes you know particularly about people over a certain age, um, very uncomfortable. But it's always been, become very organically to me because again, I saw the value of authenticity and leadership at Ogilvy and elsewhere that people who really you felt like you got to know them, you know, you have loyalty, you have a sense of mission, you have a sense of personal connection that makes you know work worthwhile you know, whether you're trying to change the world or not, you know, you're in this foxhole with these other people. And if you like them, you're going to apply yourself that much more.
1: So that power of authenticity, and I'm not a marketing expert, and I think it's the toughest, it's the toughest hire that I ever make when I'm building a team. But I will say, uh, acknowledging in that in that mode not only who you are but when you feel like you're making good decisions and when you make mistakes is the most powerful thing in the world and i had an experience at avid i had a chance to work at avid which is truly an amazing company we were there much later in the journey um long after bill warner who's the founder had had transformed uh the the media industry with his editing tools but they had kind of gone a little sideways with customers on some product stuff and and we took the approach that we were going to sit down with customers and say look and by the way, some of that was on us. We, we made some mistakes here, and we're going we're gonna to fix those as opposed to spinning up a story that... Uh, and it was so powerful. Um, now, obviously, when you make a mistake, whether on an individual or on a company basis, it's greeted with some skepticism and cynicism. So if you're going to go out there and say, we've made a mistake either strategically or product quality or whatever it is, you better be deeply committed to fixing it because yeah, they're yeah. going to hold you accountable. But if you do... Uh, it was one of the most profound market and customer experiences I've ever I've ever seen. So that, that honesty is very powerful, yeah. and it's hard, right? It's hard to say, I called this one wrong. But I, even when you see it from, you know, not to digress into politics, because my head will explode, but even when you see from politicians where they say, hey, I might have missed this, think about how how you're drawn to that. Yeah, It's really, really a little powerful. bit of humility goes a, a long way. You know,
0: it on. reminds me of the, the Pizza Hut campaign where they – they basically said you know our pizza you know, our pizza isn't good right. um and and that was transformative for their business they they had been sliding down market share for years and years and years and that really turned things around um part of it was the product upgrade but i think the way they communicated it um you know i think all quote unquote consumers i hate that word but but people you know regular people who buy stuff um they have a reflexive cynicism about anything that comes right. to them through a marketing channel and i think you kind of like you get a second look if you do something unexpected, and, and particularly if you do something unexpectedly, you know, authentic. Um, and and I don't want to go there either. But I think you know, our last president had a way of doing that in a way our president, right. uh, you know, will never understand. All right. So I want to come back to so so you you're you know I'm sure you're a big successful salesperson at IBM and 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 you're you're making a lot of money and you're doing great and you're you made it in the man's world. You're like you know moving on up right and and talk to us a little bit about about the decision to move into something more entrepreneurial and leave the nest and and you know how you came to that decision and then the the process that you made it happen
1: so uh, going to your opening question about how do you think about as a young person coming out of school I want to do the startup should I just go out and do it i always thought i wanted to do entrepreneurial things and some of that is my background my dad was an original entrepreneur so uh, IDC, which we know, uh, International Data Corps, um, was started in the 60s by Pat McGovern. My dad was employee number three. And so when we were kids, one Christmas we got stock options for Christmas instead of Barbie dolls. But let me tell you, I was not a happy camper because no one knew at the time what a stock option sure. was and no one knew what an entrepreneur was and it was not a cool thing, right, in the in the 60s and sort of uh, early 70s. So. But that that stock option bought me my first house, or it helped to. Um, so so I had this weird, you know, sort of I don't know, some childhood thing. I really want to go try to do this. It was very glamorous and amazing to my ten-year-old self. So I I was determined to leave. I ended up staying longer. I kept getting opportunities to do some more things and learn some more things. I I actually applied and got into Harvard Business School, and IBM convinced me to stay and keep going. And I loved it. But finally, I said, "All right, I got to go do this, or I'm never going to do it." Yeah. So um, I jumped into a startup. I had no, you know I was the head of sales at a object oriented database company, which. Uh, <laughs> Which, in which I learned lots of lessons about what not to do. So I didn't even have experience or lens to evaluate what's a good step, what's a bad step. I loved the CEO, so I went in the head of sales to this company, which, uh, you know, my big takeaway was uh, don't, don't do a startup that is a technology looking for a problem. Because we, we, weren't, we had very cool, very elegant obj- database management technology that you needed a PhD to understand the sales presentation. So after you know 12 very difficult months, actually we ended up uh, selling the company. So I I uh, and I, off I went. Despite the challenges we had and the incredible learning, um, it was awesome. You know, it was just everything I dreamed of. And so I, I've been. Uh, the, my story is uh, kind of big and small company. Uh, usually if I'm in a big company, I'm either trying to grow something or build something or fix something, which has a lot of entrepreneurial cadence to it. And if I'm in a smaller company, we're building and rocking. And so uh, I do think there's a transference of those skills. And I think depending on what you what phase of your life you're in and what you're trying to get done, you know, both both can help you on your journey.
0: You know, I have this theory that, um, that all executives, they have a, um, a range of, of um, comfort or fit with a specific section of the risk curve, that I think people who there are people who just like are thrive in chaos and are happy to iterate their way to glory and like there tend to be earlier stage people, and you have people that are all about systems and process and scalability and they tend to be sort of late and you know where do, where is your comfort zone on the, on that curve and and why do you think that is? So
1: I am all about ten to one hundred fifty mil. So I think that. And Particularly, the older I get, the more narrow my range is. So, Mike, I completely agree with that. I, I de- and knowing that about where you belong is so important. I think if it's a big, big company, um, I had an amazing experience at Fidelity, but it wasn't a good cultural match for me. Uh, every, it was a, a you know so successful that it was you know it was very hard to change because it's just they're you know incredibly, incredibly successful, and and it, and it felt very, uh, the cadence was slow for me, so I started to make trouble. (laughs) I get in trouble. I try to fix things (laughs) that are broken, so that was my, and and I, and I, and I loved my time at Fidelity, but on the other hand, the very, very small companies, um, for me, there's a certain amount of complete insanity to sitting in a garage and saying, this is, we're going to go, right? It is breathtaking, brilliant insanity, because if you look at everything that's going up against you, your odds of going are, as you know, not high. Yeah. But it, there is a, a, a level of both risk tolerance, which I think is some of it, but it's also like a passion about that journey that I just, as I've gotten older in particular, I just have a hard time with. Although I did participate with a team and we started a business and it was you know, a great, great experience. So I did it, but um, I think it's that place where you're at 10 million and customers have started buying your stuff and and the and the and the opportunities are there, and now the question is how do we scale without breaking it? Um, and how do we how do we stay focused but broad? Now that's uh, and by the way, the most important and for me most gratifying is how do we build a team? so I, I like to be in a company that's large enough for us to start to put together a team of folks who can you know really go take the field. I love sports analogies, which is a little bit of a I'm a sports fan. Um, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't depending on the company but I think that's the team building part of it. You know, I'm such a fan of Bill Belichick. I'm such a fan of people who who know how to build great teams and it's the work I love the most. Yeah. So so 10 to about 150 mil and then after that I kind of get it starts to get starts to get uh, uh, it's just a little bit less challenging particularly if you have momentum.
0: Understandable. What
1: about yours? What's yours?
0: Um, mine's about the same. Um, I um I like order. Um uh Katie Ray once told me yes. I it's important for me it's important to me to maintain the illusion of control. <laughs> oh, <clears throat>
1: that's which
0: strange. I which is such a Katie Ray thing to say. Um but I do think that's true that I like order and chaos and it's funny because I'm a father of four and we have a dog and my house is a constant like shit show. <laughs> it
1: reminds you. Um yeah.
0: wow. but but like my office is very tidy and there's not a lot of stuff on my desk and and I like to um iterate on the details and nuances of the communication. And I think you have to be at a certain level of product market fit before anything is sort of written down in ink. You know, like, uh, like, you know, you, you, you know, you have to tell somebody's famously seven times before they hear it and whatever, you know, marketing takes a while to kind of unfold. And so you have to have discipline and sustain that discipline through all the trials and tribulations of whatever's changing in the marketplace. And, and, you know, last year's uh, big data is this year's AI and, like, all the packaging bullshit that, uh, um, you know, that, that, that causes change as well as some of the substantive change, right? There is, you know, we live in a world that changes much more quickly than it ever has. But for me, I like to have a couple of basic things locked down. I want to know who the target is. I want to know, you know, that three people have bought it for roughly the same reason and that's something I can talk about. And then I can take that and make it something that scales, and that that for me is the part I enjoy. Um, if you're disciplined in that way, eventually it gets to a point where you're tired of saying the same thing. Um, you know, I, I joke sometimes that, uh, you know, the worst part about being the CEO is is you end up being kind of the chief repetition officer. Like, you know, there's something that you, you, <laughs> you're right. really just having the same conversation with individual people, like again and again and again and again about whatever it is. I think people don't, who haven't done the job, don't really understand how much of it is that. Um, And I I, I expect it's the same for a politician or whatever to come back to your first love. But uh, uh, anyway, that for me is, it's about the same. And that's what we invest in here. You know, we're not a spray and pray kind of seed fund. We really are focused on, we say we're early traction capital. And it's really for that reason that, that we're really, you know, our North star is strength of customer value proposition. Um, because we feel like if you can get that, then you can build a business around it, and that's that's where we add the most value.
1: I think that that range is also critical for the technology ecosystem here. Um, one, I've been so blessed. I mean, I'm, I'm, I have had a lot of different uh, roles, and all of them have been in this tech ecosystem. In Massachusetts, I'm a big believer in it, and I'm a big, in, you know, sort of, I, I'm, I'm very outspoken about the fact that we should talk more about what we're doing here and why it's important as we compete for talent, which is a hand-to-hand combat competition, Sure. Um, as you know well. So um, I'm, uh, you know, particularly, I think what happens, if you can get a, a company through that $20 and $30 million, you know, up, up to the sort of $70 million, that company can scale. You start to be on a trajectory to scale, and we need more scale kind of foundational businesses, Um this uh, team that uh, actually Colin Engel from iRobot uh, started in concert with folks from the state of Massachusetts. It's called Tech Hub, and it's focused on creating uh, capabilities and platforms and mentoring and having the state support, the scaling of some of these young companies to to support, because you can't have an ecosystem if we don't have some big players. And a lot of our big players have been acquired, right? So... Um, and, and tend to sort of fade away as part of that acquisition. So I think it's, uh, I, I think having the more folks that are working as you are in your firm to get companies through that trajectory and then off to greatness, hopefully some of them will decide to stand alone and be the next, you know, EMC for our community. Not yeah. that EMC is going away, but it's a very different
0: company. Now. Anchors. Yeah, you need those yeah, anchors. Yeah, really
1: big, big time.
0: You know, i got to ask you about boards. Um, you know, you've served on a lot and you've served at every level, right? Startups to to public companies. Um, What makes a good board member?
1: That's a Mike, that's a really good question. Um, I think in these times, um, the first and most important thing is to know why you're in the room, you know? And I think public boards have become very disciplined about it. Uh, I think younger companies are looking at, all kinds of things, but public companies are now looking very specifically at we want to build a cadre of skills, we want to have a complement of skills in the room to help us deal with the next set of issues that are in front of us. And so um, knowing what you bring to a board and why they want you on the board is really important. Um, whether it's, you know, you've been a CEO, whether it's that you're a tech innovation expert, whether, you, whether it's because you bring marketing um, insights as you certainly would. Knowing the industry, knowing invest I mean, there's a million reasons why boards might might want you there, might need you there. And knowing that and knowing the value you're bringing to the discussion because it's very different than management. And that's a, a big turn that that um, that I took, um, you know, three or four years ago when I started my first independent board experience. But certainly even in the smaller companies that I'd worked with as a sitting CEO, it's important to know what you're bringing and what you're not, and that you're not management. You're really design, trying to bring... Context and support. uh, Ask the tough questions. Be a sounding board, which is really important. Um, Have a relationship with the management team, and know what your, you know, what your contribution is. So I think that's important. And I think you also have to have a passion about the business, whatever it is that you're doing. I mean, whatever business. I recently was just really privileged to join the Ingersoll Rand board. And uh, Ingersoll Rand is a very large manufacturing company. Very focused in, um, you know, they they own train. We do a lot of big air conditioning, and, and now more and more sustainability work in big buildings. Um, they own a lot of uh, uh, companies that are in the refrigeration business. And I wanted to go be in manufacturing. I had a passion about learning more about it. Yeah. Um, I believe that technology. This is the great sort of next-gen impact that tech is going to have in industry, right? Uh, I mean, I think IoT is still, or at the tip of the iceberg, um, and not just because we can now sense these technologies, these hard products, but also because of how we use and think about the data to create different kinds of customer value. So um, I'm learning a ton. I'm very passionate. I'm passionate and believe in the value system of the company, and hopefully I can contribute something to as they try to innovate their business in the next 10 years. So I think you gotta really care about the business. You know, I think it, it, that's important. So I'm, I love the work. I think it ties back to the work I'm doing at MIT as a teacher, I think it's about mentoring and, um, and being a resource for the management team as they drive the strategy, which is clearly what management teams have to do.
0: All right. Kirk Arnold really enjoyed that. Um, Such a warm, thoughtful, deep thinking person and love that sales perspective. Uh, Love the idea of a servant leader. And, um, you know, you could just know right away when someone's sort of real and authentic and uh, just had that feeling uh, about her right from the start. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thanks for sticking around and we will see you next time.